Well, good morning. As has already been said, this is one year of being Trinity Church together. A year ago, this weekend, we covenanted together in the presence of witnesses at Faith Bible Church. We covenanted together and became a church. And then a week after that, we met together for the first time, gathered together at Spokane Valley Event Center, and it has been a wonderful year. Uh, We've added many into our number over this year. Many of those aren't able to be here this morning because they're sick. Some of you are here and you're not feeling well uh, because sickness is going around. I I have made the mistake a few times of telling the guys, I don't think we're going to have many people there this morning. It's people are really sick. But you know why I say that? Because the second week of meeting together, our first week gathered together, it was a great, everybody was there, it was a great meeting. And then the second week, do you remember what happened? The second week, nobody showed up because everyone was sick. We had like 30 people there. Uh, and so ever since then, you know, I was like, well, you know, probably nobody's going to show up. But uh, uh, so glad that you're here. And uh, we are missing several, and sad that they can't be with us on our one-year celebration and anniversary, Uh, but glad that you are here and looking forward to being in God's Word together. I thought it good on our one-year anniversary uh, to seek to encourage you to stop for a moment, to reset ourselves, to think about where we've been and where we're going. And I couldn't take you on a vacation with me. We can't all just go on a vacation or a retreat together, although that would be nice, wouldn't it? We'd, we'd really find out how close we were if we went on vacation together. Uh, we can't do that, but I thought it would be good at least to stop for one Sunday, not to continue our study in the book of Acts. Uh, that will begin again next week. We'll start with Acts chapter 6 next week. But I thought it would be good for us to stop and to meditate, to reflect on a very important passage of Scripture that I think will be an encouragement to us. It will be a good reset for us. And for this, I've chosen as a text Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Would you turn there and stand with me for the reading of God's precious word? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you, as has already been prayed, we come to you wanting to glorify you and gathering together as your people, wanting to exalt your son in our midst, wanting to treasure your word, your gracious revelation that has been given to us. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, a work of transformation, a work of encouragement, 
that you would remind us of what's true, teach us, instruct us, rescue us from our blindness, rescue us from our laziness and our lack of care in some instances and reinvigorate us for this race that you've given us. We pray for your glory in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me give you the main idea of this text. Start off with just giving it to you straight out. It's found there in verse 1. Anytime you're reading here in an epistle or a sermon like Hebrews, you want to look for the main verb. The main verb will give you the main idea. And here we find it in verse 1. It's the center of the entire text. The main idea is this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now it's important for us to understand the audience to which the writer of Hebrews writes. The audience that he gives this command to consists of people with a Jewish heritage who have professed faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. These people in Hebrews have experienced a great deal of difficulty in following Christ, but now they have come to a a crossroads in their faith. They've come to a place in the path where they must make a choice. It is for them a crisis of faith. They are being pressured, persecuted by those in their community, those in their own families, those whom they identify with as friends and business associates. They are being pressured by their own people to reject their faith in Jesus and embrace their Jewish heritage, their important roots, their religion, the religion of their forefathers, the religion of those before them. The entire book of Hebrews is aimed at lifting up then for these people at the crossroads of faith The entire book of Hebrews is aimed at lifting up the person of Jesus. His worth, his value, his work and its sufficiency, his supremacy to all. He is the fulfillment, the culmination of all their Jewishness, their practices, their religion, their heritage. The writer of Hebrews is calling these people to see Jesus and all that he is and that he is so far superior to the temple. I mean, think about, think about the craziness of that statement. The writer of Hebrews is telling Jewish people to get out of the temple, leave the temple, leave the sacrifices, leave the high priesthood. Leave all that you have come to know and treasure and hold as dear. Leave it all. Because Jesus is far superior to all that you've held dear. He 
tells them very seriously that to turn back on Jesus at this point, to turn back on Jesus at this crossroads, to go back into the shadows of the Old Testament would be to crucify and reject Jesus all over again. In short, the writer of Hebrews calls these Jewish believers, these Jewish Christians, to hold fast their confession of faith. For Jesus alone is worthy. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, our text for this morning, we come to the climax of the writer's sermon. We come to the climax of Hebrews. There is a, a change that happens here at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Here we see an imperative that has such force behind it that it cannot be truly grasped, comprehended without taking the entire 11 chapters that have come before. This imperative that I simply gave you a moment ago, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This imperative is taking into consideration the 11 chapters of Hebrews that has come before, the case that the writer has made for the superiority of Jesus, the worth and the value and the glory of Jesus. He says, because all this is true, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run the race. Endure. Keep going. Don't turn back now. Not at this point. Now, if you have a Bible study on the book of Hebrews, which I'm sure many of you have had, you've gone through a Bible study on the book of Hebrews, it's likely that the theme for Hebrews given to you in that study was Jesus is better. Or Jesus is superior. Well, amen and amen. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. I would only seek to modify the statement slightly, though. The point of Hebrews is not just to say that Jesus is better, although this is true. We would all agree with that. The point of Hebrews is to call people to endurance in light of the superiority of Jesus. You see, that, that is the implication of the truth that we say amen to. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. The implication then is run the race with endurance. Persevere. Jesus is better, so keep running after him. If you were to ask me, this is why I've chosen the text. If you were to ask me what my desire is for you, for each one of you, if I could sit down with you at your table and look you eye to eye, if you were to ask me what my desire is for you, it would be parallel to what the writer of Hebrews hopes to give his readers. My desire for you is that you would see Jesus as better, as superior, as worthy of everything and that you would run hard after him. That, that's my desire for you. 
I want you to endure. I want you to keep going. I don't want you to turn back. My one job as I see it, as a pastor, here's what I believe my job description is. And maybe, maybe it's not the same as your job description for me. Maybe you have a different job description for me. But the, the job description as I see it is this. My one job is to make sure that you get all the way to Jesus. That's my job, is to care for your soul in that way. Our one pursuit as a church, Jeremy said a moment ago that our purpose is to preach the gospel, amen and amen. But you know the only way that we can do that if we make our one pursuit as a church, Jesus himself. The reward and the prize of our race, the aim of our race is Jesus. This text here gives us three key truths, three essential truths for you to understand if you are to endure, if you are to keep going, if you are to persevere, three key essential truths for us, for our endurance. Number one, you see in this text, the necessity of endurance. The necessity of endurance. The verse begins, therefore, since. These are logical connective words, connecting it to what has come before in chapter 11. And as I said, even in the chapters previous, Therefore, since this is strong connective tissue, therefore isn't strong enough. Since isn't strong enough. So the writer says, therefore, since emphatically pointing you back to what he said. It's an emphatic call to connect what the writer is saying to what has come before. This emphasis is doubled by what the writer spells out exactly. In the next words, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The writer is pointing us back to the massive chapter preceding this one, where he has spelled out for us what living a life of faith looks like. What does running a race with endurance look like? And the picture he gives we call the hall of faith. But he actually begins in chapter 10, verse 32. Would you, would you do this and turn back to 10, chapter 10, verse 32. Let me read, starting there. I'm going to read and skip through the end of chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 10, verse 32, here's what he says says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a harsh struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, now look at this. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, 
So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, he says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. By my righteous one, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So so get this, the context of chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 that we're looking at today goes all the way back to chapter 10, verse 32 and following. He's calling his reader to endurance, and this is what he tells them in no uncertain terms, okay? He tells them that it is necessary, their endurance is necessary for their salvation, This is the reality of it. Those who have saving faith in Jesus, he will preserve them by faith. Those who have saving faith in Jesus will persevere in faith. Saving faith then is proven in our perseverance. And by that faith, we preserve our souls and receive the promise The writer believes those he is writing to are those who have saving faith. And by the way, as I said before, my desire for you is the same as the writer of Hebrews for his audience. And I would not be speaking to you this morning if I did not believe that you were of those who have saving faith. That's why this message is so important. Says, we are not of those who shrink back. I believe that. I believe that we here are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says that his readers belong to a particular group of people. You belong, he says, to those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he pours forth at that point. He pours forth in a most remarkable chapter. If you're you're looking for a good chapter to read often to your children, I would encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 11 with them. Or to memorize this chapter even for your own soul's sake. Here's how this chapter begins. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Right? He says, we're, the, we're, we're of those that have faith. We're not of those that shrink back, but of those who have faith, who persevere. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the, convictions of things not see, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And then he goes on to list all of those who demonstrate what living by faith looks like by faith Abel by faith Enoch by faith Noah by faith Abraham by faith Sarah and then he says these all died in faith not having received the things promised But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, 
For people like this, people who speak in this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. You desire a better country? They did. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Isaac, he goes on to say, by faith, Jacob, by faith, Moses. Hear hear what he says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Do do you hear what he says? He, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the danger or the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What was the key to Moses' endurance? He saw something. No, he saw someone. And that caused him to persevere. He goes on to say, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. I'm skipping forward here. It says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, he said, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here is the point. We have been shown how to live by faith. When you read about this passage in some devotionals or Bible studies, they will talk about this great cloud of witnesses as if they are like a big arena cheering us on. Did you ever hear that? Oh, look at this cloud of witnesses, and here they are. They're cheering us on, and they're watching us run the race. No, no, friend, that's not the point. They are not watching us. This cloud of witnesses is is around us, surrounding us, but we are looking at them. We are watching them and their life. They have shown us how to live by faith. They have shown us the cost. They have shown us what it will take. I don't think the picture is that They are looking at us, but we are to consider them and their example. They have given ample witness, a great cloud of witnesses. They have given ample witness to what a life lived by faith looks like. 
And we are being called to run with endurance as those before us have run. These, Hebrews 11, these are our people. Do you understand that? These are our people. They're the people of God, as we are. People of faith that did not shrink back, as we are called to be. These are our people. They believed God and yet did not receive or realize in their time the promise that he had made them. We have been given what they were waiting for, and by so receiving it, we are completing them. We have completed as receiving Jesus and his revelation, as we looked at in the Advent season, as seeing his coming. We complete the people of God. We are part of the people of God throughout history, Why would we think, here's the question I want to ask, why would we think that we in our lives have been called to anything different than those who have gone before us? I don't pretend to know what's going on in your life. I don't pretend to understand all the layers to the difficulty that is your life. I don't know your personal histories. I don't know, as some people call it, your personal demons. I, I, I don't know all of the strife and difficulty of your life. I don't pretend to know that. But here's what I do know. Following Jesus has always been difficult. And there is not one of you in here who has set about to follow Jesus that has an easy road. Not one of us. Why? Because this, this is how God's people live by faith. The fact that you have a difficult road is not unique. That has been the course for all of God's people for all of time. What are we to do on this difficult road? We're to endure by faith. Why would we think we have been called to anything different? In fact, if the promises they believed caused them to live in the way that they did, how much more what we have received? If they persevered in their faith, how much more are we called to persevere in our faith in Christ, the one they hoped for and waited for that we have received? So as the people of God, we see that our endurance is necessary, the necessity of endurance. But then we also see here the difficulty of endurance. Let us look at it there in chapter 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely In the historical context of the writer, athletes who entered the arena, athletes who entered the arena to race would strip themselves down to nothing. Athletes who came to the arena to race, they would remove clothing, they would remove anything that could encumber or restrict them. They would strip themselves down to nothing. Running to finish and win the race meant being unencumbered. 
They demonstrated their devotion and earnestness to run well by freeing themselves from all entanglements. Now, in a real foot race, it would be easy to free ourselves of entanglements. They would be easy to see. In a real foot race, it's easy to see what would trip us up. But in our race, the race that we are called to here, that which weighs us down or entangles us may be harder to recognize. We fail to understand what keeps us from running well because we fail, get this, we fail to see the singularity of our goal. Our goal is singular. Our aim, our prize, our goal and reward is Jesus. The race is about making it to him. Scripture calls this aim Christ-likeness. We're familiar with that term, Christ-likeness, but we make the mistake of underestimating, again, the singularity of this aim. We think that while Christ-likeness is a good aim and an important aim, we, we think that it's just one of many aims. Here are all the things that we're supposed to do as a Christian. Here are all the things that we're supposed to pursue. Let me illustrate this. I have people come to me all the time. Men come to me all the time. I mean, it happens regularly. And they will say something to the effect of, I am not a very good husband And I will say to them, well, get in line. I don't know many of us that are. Well, I want to be a better husband. That's what all of us want that are married as husbands. We want to be a better husband. But when someone comes to me with that aim, is that a a bad aim? No, it's a good aim. To be a better husband is a good aim. However, it is not the right aim. Here's what I mean by that. When someone comes and says, I want to be a better husband. The first thing I say is, well, that's a good goal, but let's adjust the goal. Instead of setting our sights on being a better husband, why not set our sights on Jesus himself? If we aim at Jesus, here's what will happen. You will become a better husband. Now, I can't fix your marriage. And guess what? Brother, you can't fix your marriage either. It's not in our power to do. But if we aim at Jesus, we will be transformed into his likeness, which will make us a loving, caring, serving husband. Not only that, but we will at the very same time model for our wives what she should be aiming at as well. And not only that, we will gain with that aim contentment. You see, if you aim at being, and this is just an illustration, 
to prove the point. If you aim at being a better husband, here's what you will get. One of two things. Either you will accomplish some level of being a good husband and become very proud of yourself, very self-confident of what you've accomplished, or, more likely, you will fail and become discouraged and despair and give up. But if we look at Jesus, our goal, our aim is him. And here's, here's the truth. You can't look at Jesus and be discouraged. You can't look at Jesus and be proud. Looking at Jesus humbles you. Looking at Jesus encourages you. And Jesus is the only one He is the only one that will satisfy you. The more you aim at the wrong thing, the more discontent you will be in your Christian life. And we could give so many illustrations of those things that are good things to aim at and yet are not the aim. We think that while Christ's likeness is a fine aim, it's one of many. And I'm here to tell you this morning, I want to encourage you this morning that Christ's likeness, Jesus himself, is the singular aim of our life. And that should be, he should be what consumes us. We also make the mistake of grossly underestimating the difficulty of putting on Jesus. Putting on Jesus, going to Jesus, aiming at Jesus requires, hear this, the death of all that is self. My ambition, my status, my wants and dreams, my comforts and security, my earthly aims. It would be good for us when we wake up in the morning to look in the mirror Some of us, it would be good to just like literally do this for a while at least. To wake up and look at ourselves in the mirror and tell ourselves, remind ourselves, today, Paul Funches, today you are not the point. Your life and your schedule and your aims and pursuits and goals and wants and all of these things, you are not the point today. And then pray, God, give me the grace to see Jesus today and to make him the point of everything. Make him my aim today. Where I once lived... Now Jesus lives instead. And this is what God is doing. He is taking his son. He is making in his son more sons who share in his likeness. And I must say, those who are not running this race with singularity to Jesus are not going to Jesus. This is the path that he has set before us. 
Christ-likeness, which will require death to self. What is the nature, then, of the sin that clings so closely to us? Contextually, I believe the writer is speaking directly of sin which finds its root in unbelief and faithlessness. Now, isn't isn't that what caused Adam and Eve to sin and lose paradise? Isn't this what caused Adam and Eve to sin and forfeit what they had been given? God had given them everything they needed to live well. They had been blessed without measure. And into that haven of rest, into that garden of blessing, entered another voice. Another voice that sought to challenge the voice and the truth of God, saying, Has God really said? You see, we grossly, we grossly underestimate the commitment of the one who would keep us from finishing the race. And we grossly underestimate our readiness, yea, our willingness to believe what is not true. Our readiness and willingness to believe a lie. I want you to, for a moment to envision this path that we are on, this, this race, not as an oval track, not as an oval track with arena, but just for a moment, I want you to envision this race as, as a cross-country journey on a very narrow path, a narrow path that will go through vast wastelands and deserts and swamps and over high mountains and through dark, deep valleys and through caves cold and dark. That is the type of path that we are on. And it is fraught with danger. The things that seem to give us comfort are there to trip us up. There are many places along the way where we are tempted to stray away, to drift away, to take another easier road. And there is someone who is committed to keeping us from finishing the race. And we underestimate that. We underestimate our willingness to be deceived and led along. You see, throughout this race, throughout this race on this narrow path, we are accompanied by a voice that says to us, is is this really worth it? Is it really worth it? Is is this path really heading anywhere? Look, Look at other people's paths. They have it much easier than you. Why would God, who says he loves you, set you on such a difficult path? And with this voice, there will be all manner of ready offerings to take the place of the long and arduous journey. Pleasure, the approval of people, 
material comforts, success, and all types of pursuits. Hear this warning, and this is what Hebrews is telling us. Many have forsaken the path to please themselves with temporary pleasures and joys, only to forget the path altogether or to reject the idea of ever setting foot on the path again. Now with a race set before us, which is so difficult, how will we run with endurance? We see the necessity of endurance. We see the difficulty of endurance. But, but this is so important. Here in this verse, we also see the agency, the means of endurance. How will we endure? The scripture tells us. Look at it there again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, look at it, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we find the key to endurance. If we're going to run the race, throwing off all that hinders us and sin that entangles us, if we are to finish the race, here is how we will do it in three simple words. Looking to Jesus. You see, the key to running the race and not quitting, the key to running the race and not drifting away from the path, the key to running the race and not falling into a trap of sin is not, the key is not by looking at the path itself. The key is not measuring the miles that you have traveled or measuring the miles that you still have to go. The key is not looking at your own strength or your own ability or your own wisdom. The strength The key is not to find an easier and more traversable path. The the key, did you know that there's no eject button for the Christian life? I went and visited Tiffany Robinson yesterday, who's been sick for weeks now. She has COVID, much like Jeremy did a year and a half ago, had COVID, and she has asthma as well. So she said it feels like she's been breathing through a straw for at least a couple of weeks. And that lack of oxygen has fatigued her. Her heart rate, she stands up, she tries to do anything in the kitchen, her heart rate gets up. She's fatigued, she's tired, she's discouraged. Many of us can relate. The key for endurance in such situations just like that is not by finding an easier path. There's no eject button. There's no way to get out of it. What's the key to endurance? 
It's not by looking at the path. It's not by measuring the miles. It's not by looking to my own strength. It's not by finding an easier road. Here's the key. The key to running the race. The key to endurance is looking up. Looking up. Now that would seem silly. If I'm going to run this race well, I need to look at the race itself. No, no. The key to running the race is by looking up. To look up at Jesus. What does it say about Jesus here? He is at the throne of God. On the right hand of God, our Father, the key to running the race is by looking up to the throne of God where our champion sits there. And he is our champion. He is our trailblazer. He, he has carved the very path that we must travel. He's carved it himself. He has showed us the way. He demonstrated what it looks like to die. Did you see that there? It says he despised the shame. He dismissed the shame as nothing because of the joy that was set before him. And he is saying from the throne, Follow me. Look at me. It is worth it. I have traveled this same path, but to such a degree and with such a victory that you will not fail if you come after me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. That is the key to endurance. He is the author of our faith. He gave it to us. Do you understand that? Jesus himself gave you your faith. You did not produce it in and of yourself. He gave it to you. He is the one who set us on this path. And he is also the completer, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. He, this is what it's saying, people, beloved, listen to this. He will bring us all the way home. And what a home it is. To be with him as he is now sitting at the right hand of God. By the way, that was the joy that was set before him. He looked to where he was going and that is what gave him the ability to despise the shame and to endure the cross. He saw the joy set before him. And he's calling us to have that same vision. I, I, I have great concern when we make heaven about ourselves. Heaven is not about ourselves. Eternity is not about ourselves. Eternity is about sharing in the glory of the Father and of the Son. 
That is the joy that was set before him, and that is our joy to share once again in that glory, the glory of the Father and the Son. We think way too much about ourselves. Hear a word of truth. You and I think way too much about ourselves. We think way too much about our lives and what we get, what we haven't got. We make way too much of the difficulty. Let me repeat that. We make way too much of the difficulty. There is no easy life, friend. You become discouraged and I become discouraged. I, I know very well what it looks like to be discouraged. I know discouragement intimately. And I am discouraged when I get my eyes off of Jesus and I put my eyes on the difficulty, the circumstances of the path. I start considering all the impossibilities. This is too difficult. I can't make it. But Jesus says, look at me. I'm the one who set you on this path. I'm the one who's walked this path. And I will complete this path if you will just come to me. We think way too much about what we don't want to happen or what we aren't pleased with about our lives. We think way too much about ourselves and not enough of the reality that to die is gain. Where our life was once so precious to us, we must learn to die. And let his life remain. I picked up this booklet at a conference we were at a couple years ago. It's just simply entitled Looking Unto Jesus. And it sits by my desk at the office. And I pick it up every once in a while just to read a couple of excerpts from it. Looking unto Jesus. Can I read you a couple of these? They're not long. Our call is to look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus in the scriptures. To learn there what he is and what he has done, what he gives and what he desires. To find his character, our pattern. In his teachings, our instruction. In his promises, our support. In his person and in his work, a full satisfaction provided for every need of our souls. Look unto Jesus, crucified, to find in his shed blood our ransom, our pardon, our peace. Look unto Jesus, looking unto Jesus, risen, to find in him the righteousness which alone makes us righteous and permits us, all unworthy as we are, to draw near with boldness in his name to him who is his Father and our Father, his God and our God. Looking unto Jesus glorified, to find in him our heavenly advocate, completing by his intercession the work inspired by his loving kindness for our salvation. Looking unto Jesus, just very quickly, who gives repentance. Looking unto Jesus to receive from him the task and the cross for each day. Looking unto Jesus to go forth from ourselves and to forget ourselves so that our darkness may flee away before the brightness of his face. 
looking unto Jesus, who having returned to the Father's house is engaged in preparing a place there for us. Looking unto Jesus, whose certain return at an uncertain time is from age to age the expectation and the hope of the faithful church. Looking unto Jesus and at nothing else. Looking unto Jesus and not at ourselves. Looking unto Jesus and not at the world. Looking unto Jesus and not even Satan himself. Looking to Jesus and not our position in the Christian church. To the family to which we belong to our baptism, to the education which we have received, to the doctrine we profess, to the opinion which others have formed of our piety, or to the opinion which we have formed of ourselves. Looking unto Jesus and not unto our brethren, not even to the best among them and the best beloved. In following a man, we run the risk of losing our way. In following Jesus, we are sure of never losing our way. And the list goes on and on. By the way, you can pick this up PDF online for free. Just looking unto Jesus, good reminders for us. By application, and I hate to to cut this off, but by application, what does this look like for our church? I have been asked on many occasions in different places, different times, What is your vision for the church? What is your vision for the ministry? I have a problem with that question. That question makes sense when you're running a business. That question makes sense when you are leading a corporation. That's a great question. But you see, I am not the leader of the church. This is extremely important. I am not the leader of the church. The church has a head and his name is Jesus. The only one who gets to give a vision for his people is Jesus himself. I don't get to railroad that and make my own vision for the people. And I can tell you this, that if I do, we're going to miss everything. This is what people say all the time. Well, our vision as a church, we're going to be an outreach focus church or our our vision as a church we're going to be missions minded or our 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 focus as a church our vision vision for the church is to grow and strengthen families or our vision for the church is to raise up men now again all of those things are really good things and worthy things but if we aim at any of them what's going to happen well like I said earlier, a couple of things. Either we will hit our aim and become very proud of ourselves as a church because we're that Bible-teaching church. We hit our aim. Or we're that missions-minded church. We hit our aim. Or, more likely, we'll fail in that aim and we'll become listless and discouraged. People won't feel inspired anymore. Here's our aim. Here's our vision. Jesus gives it to us. Our vision, our aim is Jesus himself. That's why we're here. 
Our aim is to make it to Jesus. What does that mean then for my role? As I said earlier, my sole desire for you is that you would grow in maturity in Christ. That you would grow into Christ's likeness. That's the goal. That's the aim. And you know what's going to happen if we have a church aimed at Jesus? Looking to Jesus? It is going to be impossible for us to elevate men to where Jesus should be. It's going to help us as we have internal strife and internal division. It's going to help us regain our vision if we're heading to Jesus. And if we're heading to Jesus, you know what's going to happen? Families are going to be strengthened. Missions is going to be a priority. Outreach is going to be a reality. Men are going to be raised and encouraged. Women are going to be encouraged in their roles and in their place in the church. See, when we aim at Jesus, we get everything. When we aim at any one of those things singularly or apart from Jesus, we miss it all. And what is your role then? What is your role? Did you know you have an essential role in this? Hebrews actually says this over and over and over again. Your role is to point each other to Jesus. And that's going to require, as he told us, laying aside weights and the sin that entangles us. Our role with one another is to tap each other on the shoulder from time to time and say, I think, I think there's something that's entangling you, brother. I think there's something that's hindering you and you can't see it. Our role is to encourage one another on Sunday mornings when we gather together as a body. I was telling somebody not too long ago who, who says, well, I don't really have much of a gift. I don't really have much of a purpose. Your, your ministry is attendance. Your ministry is to be there and sing and encourage and smile and to tell one another, keep going to Jesus. Our role, our ministry, your ministry. Here it is. Run the race with endurance. Run the race. Laying aside encumbrances, looking to Jesus and pointing others to him as you go to him. That is what we're doing. Amen. Looking forward to another Looking, looking forward to another year together. What a year it's going to be. Father, we thank you for this word, for this truth. I pray that you would take the simplicity of it and that, that we wouldn't miss, because of the simplicity of it, we wouldn't miss the profundity. We wouldn't miss the depth of it. Show us the worth and value and glory of Jesus and Jesus alone, that he is our pursuit. Christ-likeness is our ministry that we are pursuing. And as we pursue him, we will take others with us as we go to him. Lord, we confess, and we know all too well the difficulty of this road that we are on, 
and are sure that those around us are experiencing that difficulty keep us from pride, thinking that we can walk this path alone. Keep us from arrogance, trusting in our own strength and our own wisdom. Give us eyes to see the preciousness of Jesus, who is our champion, who is the one completing our faith. We give him all the glory for everything this morning. In his name, amen.